This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, I'm Dina Duval, Associate Professor of Law at UC Hastings. I'm honored and privileged today to be speaking with Professor Joan Williams, who is a distinguished professor of law at the University of California at Hastings, and my colleague, where she runs the Center for Work-Life Law. Professor Williams has been a pioneer in the women's movement over the past quarter century. Her writing and advocacy have resulted in some of the most important contemporary advancements in gender equality under the law, including in the areas of pregnancy discrimination and accommodation. Professor Williams has won numerous awards for her work, including the Families and Work Institute Work-Life Legacy Award, the American Bar Foundation's Outstanding Scholar Award, the ABA's Margaret Brent Award for Women Lawyers of Achievement, among many others. She has also published over 100 academic articles and book chapters. Her law review article, Deconstructing Gender, is one of the most cited law review articles of all time. Most recently, Professor Williams published What Works for Women at Work, Four Patterns Working Women Need to Know, co-written with her daughter, Rachel Dempsey, which provides in the New York Times' words, quote, unabashedly straightforward advice in a how-to primer for ambitious women, end quote. Welcome to Legally Speaking, Joan. I'm delighted to be here, Vina. So, Joan, for women of my generation, you are, as one reporter put it, a rock star. Um, You've played a central role in shaping work-family debate over the past 25 years and certainly have had an impact for many of us, including myself. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you could share how and why you started down this road. Well, I always say I was an environmental lawyer who had a baby. Um, I was of the generation of women who wanted to be accepted as a lawyer rather Mm -hmm. than a woman. But then I had a baby, and I was tenured law professor at the time because mine was the generation where we didn't have kids until we got tenure. Uh, and then I actually I almost quit after the birth of my second child because I found it so unbelievably hard. Mm. And when I was pregnant with my first child, Rachel, I was actually so had such bad morning sickness that I used to put a sign on my door saying, please do not disturb and sleep two hours a day in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized, you know, girl, if you had a real job, you would be so fired. Mm -hmm. And so it was really having my children that made me realize that there was something, in my view, deeply wrong with what's called the social construction of motherhood. Mm -hmm. I loved being a mother, but I thought, hey, the world is just not set up to support women to be the kinds of mothers they want to be. What did you first start looking at? The fresh eye? Well, I actually came out of women's history. Oh, interesting. This was before there really was uh, much of a field of work family studies. And so the massive amount of sociology that we now have was largely non-existent. Uh Uh-huh. And, but I was coming out of women's studies. I'd major out of, majored in, uh, at Yale when I was an undergraduate in history. And women's history was just beginning to really flourish. 
And so in Deconstructing Gender, the very first article I wrote about work-family issues, it was very much framed from the context of women's history and the construction of the ideal worker framed by the breadwinner homemaker family that arose around 1780. Mm -hmm. So unlike many of your colleagues um, in that particular moment, your law colleagues, you didn't just look at legal cases and, um, and legal history. You took up you know, an empirical project. You, you look at empiricism. You know, you're a leading voice in social, social psychology today. And I, um, I'm so interested in you know, how did that turn happen and, mm -hmm. um, and what does empiricism bring to your work? Well, if you had told me when I started out that I would be deeply involved in empiricism, I would have been absolutely astonished. What I was is one of the early generations of law professors who sort of wanted to get a PhD. I originally wanted to get a PhD in history, and I now realize work, looking back that the reason I didn't, as I would say at the time, I didn't want to be 40 unmarried in Topeka. <laughs> so I basically didn't follow the career path that was my first choice for work-family reasons. Mm -hmm. But I'm really lucky that I didn't because I entered uh, the law professoriate at exactly the right moment when there were a lot of us who were becoming law professors because we knew we wanted to be professors, but we didn't want to move to Topeka mm -hmm. and end up um, being denied tenure. And so I was at the beginning of, first of all, critical legal studies, and then the sort of law and movement, and um, part of the founding generation of feminist jurisprudence. And so uh, I am profoundly what I think of always as an undisciplined scholar. Mm -hmm. um, I have bopped around from place to place. I really would have been killed by peer review. I never could have... Um, I would not have survived very well in a peer-reviewed environment. I focused on history at first, but very gradually I became involved in social science, though actually as I think back it wasn't gradual. It was a, as a result of something very concrete that happened to me. I wrote a book called Unbending Gender, uh, Why Families and Work Conflict and What to Do About It, and that was published in 2000. And after I wrote that book, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, Kathy Christensen, a fantastic program officer there, began to pursue me mercilessly <laughs> and say, we want to fund you. And I'm going like, yeah, Kathy, thank you so much for the compliment. Moving on. And then she finally came down to Washington. She was in Washington for some reason, said, I want to meet you for breakfast. She met me for breakfast, and she said, I expect a grant proposal from you in two weeks, and this is what a grant proposal looks like. Wow. And so I was faced with, <clears throat> my goodness, I want to change things, and somebody's offering me an opportunity to change things. What do I want to do? And I was trying to decide at that point, do I want to try to get focus on public policy mm -hmm. and get new legislation, or do I want to focus on using existing laws, or do I want to do something else? And I made the considered political judgment at that point that I was not going to focus on public policy because no matter what I did, we were not going to have new laws in the United States at a national level, and that's proved true. Mm -hmm. We have not. Um, and so what I decided to do is to focus on exist, using existing 
anti-discrimination law in new ways. And that also proved a really good match for my particular uh, very uh, deep but narrow skill sets. Mm -hmm. That's what one of the things I do, um, I, I'm well suited for. The other thing I decided was that the other public policy was not going to really be a change lever. Litigation could be. And the second change lever really was capitalism. Mm -hmm. And that if you wanted to get something on work-family issues really done in our era, you would have to use capitalism as a lever for social change. That's really, um, really insightful. I, um, some, you mentioned Unbending Gender, which has been a pivotal, pivotal book in, um, in feminist jurisprudence and how people think about the, the role of women and men in family and at work. And one of the things, you know, that book was written 15, 15 years, years ago, ago now. And one of the most important contributions you made at the time was to say that the, things are not going to change by focusing on women alone. We need to think about men in the workplace and what, what the role of men is both in the workplace and at home. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's getting a lot, that kind of idea is getting a lot of press now. Finally. Finally, 15 years later, particularly mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley, where mm -hmm. you see a lot of gender disparity, but um, the desire for a flexible workplace. I wonder if you could, why did it take so long and why all of a sudden? This is an idea that you, you know, you were almost two decades ahead of the curve on. Uh, unbending gender um, actually got criticized for its attitude towards men uh -huh. because the, the sort of conventional attitude towards men at that point was the sort of men's foot on our neck. That's mm. our only problem. And um, <clears throat> I do think that they're very uh, there's real there are power differentials between men as a group and women as a group. Yeah. You have to be blind not to see that. On the other hand, there, I think it's important to recognize that one of the problems with this breadwinner, homemaker paradigm is that it kind of polices women out of breadwinner roles, but it polices men out of caregiver roles. Right. You've changed so much in the field of family responsibilities discrimination. Did you, did you coin that term? I did, yeah. I coined it. We originally had called it caregiver discrimination, which is what the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission ultimately called it. And then we gave an initial training just when we were sort of inventing this area of the law, and we got pushback on the term caregiver discrimination because it had too much of what I call the little pink bow. Mm -hmm. It signaled women. This is just a cute little women thing. And the, one of the key change levers that we decided to use in establishing family responsibilities discrimination of an er as an area of law, and keep in mind that when we started this, the, the first law review article on this cited only 26 cases. Hmm. Um, so we were really trying to get the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, to issue guidance on this. There was a key moment at the EEOC hearing that led to the guidance on caregiver discrimination when the chair asked me, she said, well, I hear what you're saying, but I really believe in personal responsibility. And I said, Madam Chair, I do too. What we're talking about here is whether women who are trying to take personal responsibility to support their children get pushed out of work because of gender bias. And I think that that was a crucial moment in the adoption of the 2007 
guidance on caregiver discrimination. And the reason that, that the, caregiver, the caregiver guidance was so important, and this again is we try at Work Life Law, which I founded um, and Cynthia named uh, in the late 1990s, to be very analytical about change levers. Mm-hmm. And the reason the EEOC guidance was important um, was not because it had legally binding authority. It doesn't. But because once the EEOC issues guidance, the management side, employment lawyers, defense lawyers, see a business development opportunity of like, there's this new development, and aren't you lucky? We can help train you on it. For me, there is a huge difference in how I get to live my life as a law professor at the school and how you lived your life as a mother early on in your, in your profession. And, um, and I have to thank you for... Thank, Thank you, you for yeah. that. I mean, there absolutely is. And, I mean, I think Hastings is a good example about that, and that's one of the many things I really love about it. When I came here, one of the things that really impressed me is that two of the highly valued women faculty members had taken off large chunks of time, years and years, as stay-at-home moms mm-hmm. and then been hired on tenure track as a law professor. And I have to say that I was chiefly delighted when you were interviewing because you are a fabulous scholar and such amazing hire for us, but also you were about 9,000 months pregnant. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this, I took a lot of joy in that. I thought, and nobody mentioned it. I wouldn't tell you for legal reasons if they had, but I tell you, nobody yeah. mentioned it. And I thought, this is real progress. That's huge, mm-hmm. huge. Um, you know, you mentioned the Work-Life Law Center, and it's been such uh, uh, an amazing asset for Hastings, an amazing asset for women. Um, and you mentioned it started in 1997. Can you talk about the impetus for starting a center? And how it's different also, how it's different from, you know, from other public interest organizations mm-hmm. that do employment, um, employment discrimination and employment law work. Mm-hmm. Um, what sets it apart? And how is, you know, it's been really successful. One of the hallmarks of the center is that we start from a very deep research base, but we do what professors very rarely do, take it down to concrete deliverables, deliverables, deliverables for women, deliverables for managers, deliverables for companies, deliverables for lawyers. So that's one of the ways that it's really different. The other way is that we have from the very, very beginning, as I've said, tried to be very analytical about what we call social change levers. Mm -hmm. And a a lot of feminist organizations do wonderful work, but their intellectual frame is like, you know, they work on, for example, family, and they work on paid leave. Mm -hmm. And there are some organizations that have done wonderful work on paid leave. They've been working on paid leave since the the early 1980s. And, you know, we're darn lucky they have been because that's what brought us the Family Medical Leave Act. On the other hand, you know, I don't think we're going to have national paid leave anytime soon. And we can talk about why. It's just not going to happen. And so what Work Life Law has done is we only work on projects where we can have a very concrete impact within a two to five year time frame. And we try to be very analytical about 
what is the what are the opportunities what are the social change levers to create that change part of what i used the sloan foundation money for was to establish the first of what is become a long series of working groups and in that working group was called the cognitive bias working group mm-hmm. very early before a lot of this discussion on implicit bias, bias became yeah. disseminated we brought together social psychologists with plaintiffs employment lawyers and be, uh, what i said my message to social psychologists is will you stop always comparing men to women and start to compare mothers to others mm-hmm. that was the very beginning of what is now called maternal wall bias and it's now an established field in sociology and social psychology uh, you know i've heard you say that you moved from working on work-life issues to gender bias issues. And maybe if you could just reflect a little bit on on what that meant. It's a perfect transition because the reason I did, uh, I did for two reasons. Number one, I became really disheartened um, at the lack of progress on work-life issues. Mm -hmm. And if you think about how we define the ideal worker as someone who starts to work in early adulthood and works full-time, full force for 40 years without a break, Mm -hmm. taking no time off for child-rearing, elder care, or really anything, Mm -hmm. that's gotten nothing but worse since the mid-1990s. And that's one of the reasons that for the stalled gender revolution, and that if you look at women's progress over a whole variety of measures, you know, it looks really great from mid-70s to the mid-90s, and then you have a flatlined patient. Mm -hmm. Um, And that failure to redefine the ideal worker is um, a significant part of that. But the other reason I I have shifted attention from work-life issues for professionals to gender bias is that when I read the social psychology, as part of the cognitive bias working group, it just changed my life. I thought, oh my goodness, that's what's going on in my career. That's what's happening. And it completely changed my attitude. So I began a project where every time I met a really savvy woman, I said, may I have an hour of your time, just an hour, And I just used a very simple protocol, interview protocol. I just recited the findings of experimental social psychologists on gender bias. And then I asked a simple question. Any of that sound familiar? I was a little disheartened to find that 96% of the women said yes. One woman said, you just described my life. Mm So speaking about that book, which really resonated with me as well. I'm um, sad to hear it. Yeah. You, yeah, even you know, at this stage, you and your daughter, Rachel, identify four patterns that are keeping women from advancing. Um, the maternal wall, which we've spoken a little bit about, the tightrope, prove it again, and tug of war. Now, the tug of war issue is the one that no one wants to talk no about. No one wants to talk about. Um, and I was, it was gratifying to see it in writing, because it's certainly something that we've all experienced in our careers. And what I appreciated most about your writing um, about that issue, which is the, sort of the competitiveness among women, kind of crudely put, um, is you said it's not the fault of women. It is not the cattiness of women. There are structural issues in play here. Can, can you speak to that? The tug of war among women is when gender bias against women fuels conflict among women. And it's 
the, the polite thing to do is to say, oh, this is just gender biased. You're just saying that women are witchy women, and that doesn't happen. The only problem with that conventional wisdom is it just isn't true. And when I talk about tug of war, I typically get different responses by generation. Mm-hmm. A lot of women my age say that doesn't happen. One woman got up in a very large auditorium and said, this is based on flawed, outdated research, and you must retract it. I'm going like, well, I know something about her. Um, younger women go like, thank you. Thank you for talking about this. Mm-hmm. And the tug of war, one example is there, there are four kinds of gender bias, as you mentioned. The first one is prove it again, where women often have to provide a lot more evidence of competence than men in order to be seen as equally competent. Prove it again bias often plays out among women. For example, older women sometimes say are are very very harsh critics of younger women, saying, you know, this is what it takes to succeed here as a woman. So I am holding you to this very high standard. That's prove it again bias passed through from woman to woman. Mm-hmm. The tightrope bias also is passed through. Tightrope bias is the technical name is prescriptive bias. And tightrope bias stems from the fact that all high-status jobs are seen as requiring masculine qualities. So women have to behave in masculine ways in order to be taken seriously. The only problem is that women are expected to be feminine. And so women find themselves walking a tightrope between being, being seen as too masculine to be likable or too feminine to be really competent. Mm -hmm. And women navigate that tightrope different ways. And um, so another tug of war pattern is that when very often, this is also generational, of younger women look at women my age and say, you just turned into men. You're not Mm -hmm. role models at all. In other words, you're too masculine. Mm -hmm. And younger women look at older women and, or older women look at younger women and say, you just don't understand what it means to be a lawyer taking that you know, career break. You're toast. That's a really dumb thing to do. Mm-hmm. You're too feminine. So the, the, those are all tug-of-war patterns, although the most basic tug-of-war pattern is when women receive the message there's room for only one woman. Mm-hmm. What's the natural reaction of a politically savvy woman to undercut other women? That doesn't prove that the woman doing the undercutting is a queen bee with a personality problem. That proves there's gender bias mm-hmm. in the environment. In fact, all of these tug-of-war patterns stem from gender bias in the environment. It makes me think a lot of the idea of implicit bias and kind of the implicit bias that we have, that women have towards other women. Um, something that, again, really exciting that you've been working on is not just to talk about, oh, we all have these biases, what do we do about them? You've actually been working on bias interrupters. Bias interrupters really mean two quite different things. The, the What works for women at workbook was talking about strategies that individual can, women can use for mm-hmm. themselves. The first kind of bias interrupter are, are what I call individual interrupters that managers can use. Mm-hmm. So a very, very common form of prove-it-again bias is what we call, what Rachel, my daughter and co-author, calls the stolen idea, mm-hmm. where a man, men- a woman mentions an idea, the conversation sort of continues, nobody really picks it up. A man repeats it, oh my God, it's brilliant. Um, very, very, very 
very common. Mm -hmm. When I give speeches, I typically ask for a show of hands for the number of women who have encountered this, and I would say roughly 80%. So what can a manager do if you're, you know, a person of goodwill and you see this happening? You can say in a very low-key way, you know, Sam, I'm glad you like that idea. I've been thinking about that ever since Pam first Mm. said it. And Sam, you've added the next step. Here's, I think, the third one. And I wonder if Pam wants to weigh back in. Yeah. So what the bias, one of the th- that the individual bias interrupter training does, the bias interrupters for managers, it's called, is provides managers with a way that they can, in a very low-key way, without calling anyone out or using too much political capital, they can interrupt that kind of bias in real time. Mm-hmm. The other form of bias interrupter is organizational change. Because what we've seen with this stall out of women since about 1995 is that organizations, I truly believe that many people in organizations and many organizations have been sincerely trying to change. But you know what? They have not been accomplishing the goal. Mm -hmm. That's what the demographic data and the numbers show. And I think the reason is that they've been using the wrong tools. They have been, oh, we have a woman problem. That's found a woman's initiative. Um, Well, that's fine if the problem is to fix the women. But if the problem is with that bias is constantly being transmitted through the organizational systems, the real solution is to fix the systems. And that's what the organizational bias interrupters do. This was articulated in an article last October in Harvard Business Review, and it articulates really a four-step process. Do what I did. Start out from the social psychology mm-hmm. and say, hey, this is here are the findings of these studies, any of that happening here, and develop some hypotheses for what the women think is going on. But then, you know, they may be wrong. So the next step is develop an objective metric to see whether what they think is happening is actually Mm -hmm. happening. And then the third is to put in place a bias interrupter, and I'll explain more about that in a minute. The fourth step is that to go back to the objective metric and Mm -hmm. see if it's improved. Because if it hasn't, you need to ratchet up to a stronger bias interrupter. And a bias, an example of a bias interrupter is For example, there's a study by two actually behavioral economists Mm. that posted two online ads. One of them said salary negotiable. The other one said nothing about salary. The uh, 43, the the pay gap in terms of the applicant pool was decreased by 43% for the salary negotiable ad. Wow. Two words, 43%. That's a bias interrupter. Not a long, earnest discussion about, are we biased? Oh, my goodness. Uh Not just changing a tweak to the organizational system. And the reason that that worked is because uh, we've all heard women, the problem is it was actually just appeared today, again, in the New York Times. One of the problems, one of the reasons that women haven't reached men's levels is that they don't negotiate. And I must say, I find that really, really irritating. I once blogged in my HuffPo blog, women don't negotiate because they're not idiots. When women do negotiate hard for starting salary, they tend to be disliked and they're more likely to not be hired. 
that's why women don't negotiate, because they are politically savvy enough to know that women are supposed to be modest and self-effacing, and negotiating hard triggers prescriptive gender bias. It triggers a backlash. And so by putting those words, salary negotiable, in the ad, it was a signal to women of, you can negotiate here. You can be your full self. You don't need to be this modest, self-effacing, ever-helpful girl Friday. And that's why it was, I think, had such a powerful effect. So we have been working with, the Center for Work-Life Law has been working with some of the tech companies on bias interrupters. And now we have put together the most recent working group. Um, This is the the tenth that we have run. That is bringing together experimental social psychologists because they know the literature that documents what the patterns are, behavioral, uh, organizational behavior people, because the solution is in organizational behavior and changing organizational behavior, and um, behavioral economists, Mm -hmm. because they have actually done the most work in studying how to interrupt bias instead of constantly re-documenting it. And we brought them together with five major companies that have agreed to pilot bias interrupters and let the research study them. So this is just the latest version of you spot a hole in the social science that has profound implications for organizational or social change, and you put together the right people in the room to develop this new generation of social science. It's a great personal lesson for me in my career. Um, You have done something else that I think is really worth mentioning um, and that you deserve a lot of credit for, which is to talk about the diversity of women's experience. There is not just one one woman's voice in your work, um, particularly on issues of race. It became apparent to me, just in my me-search again, that the experiences of black women and white women are really, really, really different. And they're different because of race, but they're also, the way they experience gender bias is very different. And so what I did was got money from the National Science Foundation, and we did two things. First of all, in the, in the, the research that I had done for the What Works for Women at Work book, I had worked through my social networks, and Mm -hmm. then I looked at the results, and I thought, hmm, you are a white girl. Most of the people you know are white girls. This is another book about white girls. No, not going to happen. And so I I got um, a National Science Foundation grant to study how the experience of gender bias differs by race, and it turns out it varies a lot. Mm -hmm. So... Remember, prove it again bias, where women have to provide more evidence of competence than men in order to be seen as equally competent. That's reported by 66% of women in general, but 77% of white women. Hmm. And that which makes sense. Black women are, are triggering two sets of negative competence assumptions. There's also evidence from a social psychology study by Robert Livingston and his co-authors that shows that once prove it again bias is triggered for black women, it's stronger. Mm. 
Remember the tightrope where women are, have to be not too feminine, not too masculine? That, that tightrope is much, much narrower for Asian American women. So that Asian American women are much more likely to report pressure to behave in feminine ways. 37% as opposed wow. to 8% of black women. And much more likely to report pushback if they don't behave in feminine Very ways. So, Joan, you know, you wrote your most recent book with your daughter um, during during this moment that we keep referring to. The, it's called the Stall Gender Revolution, and it's also the same kind of really kind of exciting moment where we've where we've made this recognition and Lean In has come in, and every you know it's a, it's become a colloquial term, Lean In, and mm-hmm. um, and your book is pushing people to make specific changes in, in their lives. And um, I wonder if you could. Uh, kind of reflect on what you see as the next 10 years of Mm -hmm. professional women's advancement um, Mm -hmm. and how we get there. I think it's a complicated picture. I think if work-life law and others are successful in shifting the diversity conversation to one that says, if your organization is really serious about diversity, you keep objective metrics, you put in bias interrupters, and you keep on going until you have a change in the metrics, then I will be fairly hopeful. Mm -hmm. If we keep on having what sociologists call symbolic compliance, um, where you just put on a few programs, maybe give a bias training here, Maybe tell what to teach women. Then I'm not hopeful. Mm-hmm. So it, the the future is of organizational change is in the hands of the organizations, and we'll see what they're going to do. We're certainly trying at Work Life Law to provide them with the resources to make real organizational change around diversity issues, if that's where their heart is. On work life issues, I, uh, having been Cynthia Calvert and I when we founded the Project for Attorney Retention basically invented the modern part-time policy in law firms. When we started to work on those issues, women who wanted to reduce their schedules were typically paid 60% of the pay for 80% of the work and immediately taken off partnership track. Mm -hmm. And we articulated what has become the modern part-time policy that keeps women on partnership track and pays them a proportional wage. Now, The other thing that Cynthia and I proposed, which did not catch on, was that if someone was on a part-time policy, you would have somebody high up in the org who was monitoring whether there there was what we called schedule creep, where the the schedule creeps back towards full-time, and intervenes with the supervisor saying, it looks like you're having trouble implementing our work-life policy which is a major business initiative. Can I help you? Mm -hmm. There was one firm, Dickstein Shapiro, that did that, and their schedule creep really diminished. But firms have not done that. And there is now very, very widespread research, some of it from another working group run by Work Life Law on what we christen the flexibility stigma. Yes. Showing that the part-time policies that Cynthia and I and many others worked so hard and the alternative work schedules so hard to put in place have not been successful because very often they stigmatize those who use them. And I don't see, frankly, much of anything changing Mm -hmm. there. 
The most recent report out of work life law is a pinpoints the way I think we're going to see progress on work-life issues for professionals. It's called Disruptive Innovation, New Models of Legal Practice. And for that, I and two co-authors, Aaron Platt and Jessica Lee, interviewed over 50 founders of new business organizations that are organizing the practice of law in different ways. And most of these organizations, most of them founded by men, mind you, hard-bake work-life balance into their business model. And they really offer two very different kinds of work-life balance for lawyers. One group offers a way to keep your hand in when you identify chiefly as a stay-at-home mom. So these are, I call them law firm accordion companies, and they provide mostly stay-at-home moms 10 to 20 hours a week of high-quality work, which they can turn down any time. And the stay-at-home moms are uh, joined by sort of different drummer guys. The, The biggest of these is out of Nashville, and it's called Council on Call, and it has a $50 million capitalization. So this is a big company. And then they have a lot of musicians and the stay-at-home moms all doing the 10 to 20 hours a week of work. And there's very active measures. Basically, it's the company owner who's controlling the schedule to ensure schedule creep and flexibility stigma don't go in. So that's a happening thing. But most of these organizations are designed not to deliver short part-time hours, but to deliver what I call full-time flex, which is 40 to 50 hours a week working from your home. You can work whenever you want. And a lot of women are flooding into these firms, and frankly, a lot of men are. A lot of men, and this goes back to work as a masculinity contact, contest and the toll that sort of this ever-available ideal worker model places on men, a lot of men are leaving law firms and saying, enough, it's not going to happen here. I am tired of never my family never being able to count on me for anything. This is a direct quote from a conversation I had with one of them. I want to join a business where I work full-time, but that means no more than 50 hours a week. I'm going to be at home. I can coach soccer. I can be an active, play an active role in my kid's life. I am going to be there dinner and the evenings, and then if I have to get back online, so be it. But And I want to be able to count on my vacations. And so I think what you're going to see in the work-life arena, and this is actually happening for doctors as well, is that because these mainstream organizations have not been willing to deliver the the work-life package that people want, um, I think what you're going to see is disruptive innovation, Mm -hmm. where you're going to see lawyers and others flooding to these new model firms that hard-bake work-life balance into their business model. And all of that takes us back to what you wrote 15 years ago in Unbending Gender, that we really need to focus on how men see themselves as workers and what it means to be the ideal worker. That's right. Because that kind of sets the paradigm for work. It, it really does. And one of the things in the Work as a Masculinity Contest working group that 
we're thinking about a lot is if you think, uh, I mean, I think as a theorist about gender flux and how you mm -hmm. create gender flux in people's understandings, self-understandings. Uh, and then, uh, and you know, sort of not all the way out, sort of on the queer axis, mm -hmm. but in what we call the hegemony, right in the middle right. with conventional people. And the way you create gender flux among conventional people is, well, look how women have done it. They have taken the new of these masculine roles, but they've also kept the old. Mm -hmm. um, if you look just at how we're both dressed today, right. we're both dressed very femi in very different ways, but very strong signals, I know I'm a woman, mm -hmm. right? Because that's part of social competence. If you don't know you're a woman, then you know, you're either in the Castro and it's peachy, or you're really, really out of the loop. Mm -hmm. And um, so what we have to do, I think, in fueling gender flux for men, and these new models firms really show it, is allow the men to keep their traditional their traditions of masculinity. These guys working full time flex are still breadwinners, yeah. but they're keeping the old. But they're also adding the new of saying, you know what? My understanding, and this is really the gender revolution I've seen in my lifetime, is that a lot of younger men, and, and I don't just mean millennials. Um, this is Gen X, Gen Y. Their view of what it means to be a good father has really, really Absolutely. changed. It's a good father is someone who is involved in the daily life of his child, and that is such a change for my generation. I just can't get over it. Yeah, it's exciting. It is exciting. So we've talked a lot about professionals, about men and women in mm -hmm. law firms, and um, and you know. That, going back to me, search, that's me yes, and you. Yeah. Um, but one of the places where we are seeing exciting revolution is in the low-wage worker movements. You know, you have the, the restaurant um, workers, you have the fast food workers um, really pushing for higher minimum wage, etc. cetera. Um, your work also has recently turned, as I understand mm -hmm. it, to wage workers. Very much so. Um, and I'd love to hear more about how you made that transition and what you're doing. Well, I've we're always worked on social class. Um, I mean, I've written a whole book on social class. Right. It's called Reshaping the Work-Family Debate, Why Men and Class Matter. And the first work-life law report on work-family issues for hourly workers was published in 2004, so it was a oh, long wow. time ago. We actually published a report um, in 2006 called One Sick Child Away from Being Fired. And one of the really peak points of my career, I was sitting in my office here in Hastings, and I got a call from the Assistant Secretary of Labor of the Bush administration oh, wow. saying, you know that report, One Sick Child Away from Being Fired? It helped us save intermittent family medical leave because the economists were saying we shouldn't be, um, enable people to take family medical leave in short chunks. They just game the system. They just don't come in on Monday. That's what they abuse it. And she said, I took your report that described what was really going on in workers' lives. They were one sick child away from being fired. She said, I took your report, and I said, no, that's not what's happening. This is what's happening. Um, so I thought, wow, that's like awesome. I was so excited by that. But for, other than that, there was like no, there was no uptake on this issue. Yeah. And there was no uptake, no uptake, no uptake. 
And I was begging reporters, begging them to cover this issue. What really happened is that the pioneer here is Susan Lambert of the University of Chicago, who started studying workers' schedules in the early 1990s, long before I got in on the act. And Susan now has become really the center of a national movement to provide more stable schedules for hourly workers. So there are a number of reasons why the, the, the stars suddenly aligned on that. But really before this sort of moment that's just happened in the past couple of years, I went to The Gap who had adopted for people at headquarters the sort of best practice work-life policy for professionals called results-oriented work environment. And the then head of HR at The Gap gave a, I met him at a conference and I said, I could, that's called row. He said, I could give you row for hourly workers. And he said, you could? And I've been working with The Gap now ever since, and actually co-principal investigator, co-PI with Susan Lambert on a major national pilot of shifting The Gap from quite unstable schedules, a very standard um, just-in-time schedule, as it's called, to much more stable schedules for hourly workers. And it's been, it's one of those, you know, moments when you, you work, you work, you work, and work, and then all of a sudden the stars align. Mm. And part of this, frankly, was just that Stephen Greenhouse of the New York Times finally discovered the issue. That's really was one of the crucial things that happened. The other crucial thing that happened is that unions became interested mm-hmm. in this. They had not really been, unions are very embattled, but they recognized that this was going to be a really good organizing issue. And so all of a sudden, kind of the sky's the limit. Things mm-hmm. were really changing. It's amazing. What do you think motivated the HR guy at the Gap at the conference to, to kind of I take th- what you said and move? I, I, think, I think he's a visionary. Mm-hmm. I, he had worked in retail since he was in high school. And he saw this as a real problem. And he also saw with the shift of retail away from brick and mortar that the role of the brick and mortar stores is really changing. Mm -hmm. And that you needed more highly trained workers to be able to say, you know, well, that doesn't look good on you, but this would look good on you, and, and we don't have this in the store, but let's, you know, let's go on the computer, and I can show you. And so you really needed um, more highly trained workers, and for that, you couldn't have the kind of turnover that you see with just-in-time schedules, which is very commonly 100% yeah. a year and also goes up to 500% a year. I mean, people don't know the stock if you have that kind of turnover. Right. So... Um, One of the things that was so inspiring about your latest book to me personally was your kind of honest talk and Rachel's honest talk about about your being a mom and her being your daughter. And one thing that she says or she writes is, um, there's no way to be a perfect mother, but there are many ways to be a good mother. And I say that to myself every day. Um, And I wonder if you kind of could reflect as as we... um, as we wind down, if you could reflect about what it meant to be a good mother for you. Well, I mean, Rachel found that quote. It's um, by Jill Churchill. And I was like, I wish I had that quote 20 years ago. (laughs) 
Um, and in a sense, what works for women at work is like everything I wish I had been told when I was in my 20s and 30s. Women are under such pressure to be perfect mothers. Um, and I've really seen that ratchet up because when I was growing up in the 50s, you know, my, my mom, we would come home from school, throw some milk and, milk and cookies on the table, out to play, come home for dinner. That was it. Um, upper middle class mothers now spend a lot more time in one-on-one -on -one interaction with their children. And I mean, there are two things that really are convergences that if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would cite as evidence. Not that I am a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> but one is that as women flooded into highly desirable professional jobs, the social ideal for what it meant to be a good mother has ratcheted up very, 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 very sharply. Uh -huh. And a lot of us, and I certainly did, internalized that. Now, what, so that you have to sort of discover every little micro-talent in your kid, even before they know it, and develop it immediately. Mm -hmm. And now we have the literature to show that if you do that, what you're communicating to your kid is not desire for them to be a full flower so much as economic anxiety yeah. and anxiety about their future. An anxiety levels among upper middle class kids now are higher than they are among kids in very violent right. ghetto areas. And so I think that it's really important for women to realize that if I hold myself to standards of perfection, I'm communicating to my kids that they're worthless unless they reach standards of perfection. And that is a recipe for anxious kids. Mm -hmm. And we care most about our children, and that's... That's right. If, that if you really want to be a good mother, don't worry about being perfect. Because one of the things that I also wish younger women recognized is that you know, it's not that last ounce of making Play-Doh that really matters in a childhood. It's really the emotional tone. And I think sometimes upper-middle-class moms in the United States drive them themselves so hard that that emotional tone is a little off, and they're mm -hmm. communicating stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So, Joan, we've talked about two kind of um, lots of groups of people, but we've talked about upper middle class moms, and we've talk, talked about wage workers, um, or you know, lower income moms and families, both men and women. What do these two groups of people, both of whom really want to see change for themselves, for their families, for their children, what do they have in common, and how do we bring those commonalities together to change what it means to be an ideal worker in both of these contexts? Because that, to me, kind of looking at your scholarship and your career seems to be the central thread, that mm -hmm. we need to change how we think about work. I think we do need to change how we think about work, but I think the other group that we haven't talked about that I've spent a tremendous amount of time studying and thinking about is middle-class white guys. Mm. Yes. I think one of the things that I have seen in my generation, I'm sure, sure I've seen that stall gender revolution, but you know what? For middle-class white guys, that stall would look great because you, what you've seen is the wages of high school-educated men, and now more recently, college-educated yeah. men, have not only stalled out, they have sharply, sharply defa fallen since 1973. 
And so I think that people who are interested in social inequality around workplace issues or really around a whole range of issues, really sometimes these middle class white guys are, you know, think of Homer Simpson. What is Homer Simpson? It is a funny, love it, right? But it also, Homer Simpson is the process of upper middle class people laughing at middle class men, deriding them, depicting them as lazy, stupid, pot-bellied, mm -hmm. borderline alcoholic, pathetic. No wonder they're angry. Yeah. And now I don't think, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, they wouldn't be at directing that anger at women and people of color. But I think until people, who, those of us who really care about social equality, intervene in that process of deriding and belittling middle-class white men that I think nothing is going to happen. I see it playing out in the current presidential debate. Absolutely. Uh, I gave a series of lectures during the first Obama administration, actually, which turned into a book. Um, and the, the title of the, Obama, the, the lectures was Obama Eats Arugula. Uh, and that was just an example of Obama, who has done such an amazing, such amazing code switching between being an internationalist whose mother was a white woman and making connection with the African-American community in the United States, completely didn't get class conflict in the United States. But class conflict in the United States is driving American politics. It's the reason we will never have work-family legislation mm -hmm. in my lifetime. I may be wrong, but that's my view. And it's because government has been caricatured by, and we see this in Donald Trump. Yeah. Where is that anger coming from? Absolutely. That anger is something we have to listen to and we have to respect rather than deriding. And until we do, we are not going to have political change in this country. Joan, this has been a really meaningful and exciting hour for me, and I know that everyone who watches this video will at the very least feel transformed. So thank you so much for your time, and also thank you so much for your work and your scholarship and your advocacy. You have um, not just changed the road for, um, for my generation of women, you've made it smoother. and um, I hope so. And created new possibilities. Uh, and I have to say, Vina, um, it's been really fantastic for me. We haven't had a chance to actually sit down and talk this long. And I'm, I'm really excited about having you as my colleague. And it's, you know, it's easy to get downcast in the face of this stalled gender revolution. Um, but when I see young women like me, I realize that it's been worth it. Thank you, Joan. And, and thank you to California Lawyer. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.